This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. What's the first thing you'd do if you had more time in the day? Take a nap? Read a book? Talk with a friend? When you know what's important to you, it's easier to fit it into your schedule. Therapy can help you figure that out. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Writer's Voice today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Writer's Voice. This is the Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Caleb Crane read his story, Keats of 24, from the December 11, 2023 issue of the magazine. Crane is the author of one book of nonfiction and two novels, Necessary Errors, which was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award, and Overthrow, which was published in 2019. Now here's Caleb Crane. Keats at 24. By spring, he had got to the point of thinking that virtue was a matter of not saying things, which was a little problematic for him as a writer, but not absolutely fatal. There was still something to be said for not saying everything, though not, of course, as much as there once had been. To the extent that there was a specific challenge he was facing, It was that he didn't seem to be able to finish a book he had started writing a few years before. He didn't seem to want to finish it. He seemed to be having the same problem with the half-dozen books he was ostensibly reading, several of which were, practically speaking, too long to be really finishable. Thoreau's Journal, Plato, A Second Time Through, Proust in French. I mean... Maybe he had come to prefer things that resisted being brought to an end, that could be repeated or extended as long as one wanted. Birding, crossfit, the scroll of a feed. Sometimes it seemed as if all the habits of his middle age had this character. There were no milestones left for him to look forward to, after all, except headstones. He was married. For some time now, he and his husband had been too old to have children, He had long ago gone to more school than he knew what to do with. He wasn't in any rush to arrive anywhere. Finishing a book, finishing anything, really, only took you closer to the end of the corridor. It was probably for the same reason that he resisted going to sleep every night until he was bleary with exhaustion. One night, he dreamed that a new copy came into his hands of a book of folk songs that his grandfather had given him when he was little. It lacked the yellow dust jacket that had been on the copy from his grandfather, who had bought it through the mail from Goodspeeds in Boston. Instead, on the front of the dream book, the title was spelled out in metal type that floated just above the cloth of the binding, 
as if set in an invisible letterpress chase. The pages were different, too, he saw when he looked inside. The old songs were there, but instead of four-color illustrations, there was only a faint blue wash behind some of the titles. And instead of machine-printed notes and staves, the music had been written out with a fountain pen by someone with a hasty, rather romantic hand. He found the song he was looking for. He sang a little of it to see if the melody was the same as in the book he had grown up with. Oh, Shenandoah, I long to hear you. Away, you rolling river. He put so much effort into making the singing really happen, into overcoming the natural paralysis of sleep, that he woke up. What did the dream mean, he wondered. And what did the song mean? He wondered, too, if it was really a folk song. The sorrow and beauty in it seemed too sharp to have come from a grief that wasn't personal. Oh, Shenandoah, I love your daughter. Away, I'm bound to go. Cross the wide Missouri. Maybe it was an art song that had been passed off as a folk song, or had been adapted from one. But no, he learned, after a few minutes searching the internet, it was authentic. He found a transcription that was more than a hundred years old by a maritime official named W.B. Wall, who had been to sea in his youth, and another of the same vintage by the folklorist Cecil Sharp, as well as a recording that the folklorist Percy Granger had made on a wax cylinder of a sailor named Charles Rosher singing the song in London in 1906. The lines of the song had always followed the same slow, melancholy arcs. He had played the song to himself on the piano when he was little, singing along when there was no one else home, mouthing the words if there was any danger of being overheard. It had seemed sad then, too. Love had seemed sad. Love, the song had seemed to say, was a matter of leaving home and of making promises that chance might not let you keep. Shenandoah was both the river and the father, one folklorist, he read, suggested that, in its earliest versions, the song had been about the river only, but that it had traveled so far that singers who didn't recognize the proper noun had taken it for the name of a man, which, after all, it also was, and had filled in the narrative, complicating it. So that now the singer longs to see a man again, as well as a river, and longs to take away the man's daughter, and also banishes the river, and perhaps also vanishes the man the river is named for. Even as a little boy, he had known in his heart that he was never going to take away anyone's daughter. He was the daughter, maybe, who was going to have to take himself away. And the river would be both the home he would long to return to and what he would travel along as he left it behind. One of the stories he kept meaning to write was about a gay widower who had bought a beautiful house in the country with his late husband. When his husband was alive, the two of them had renovated the kitchen. They had dug a garden. They had filled the walls of the living room with their antiquarian books and their somehow even more antiquarian CDs. They had meant to enjoy the rest of their lives together in the house. But now that the widower was alone, he kept leaving it for weeks at a time and staying instead in a small bare room in a nearby mid-sized city where he didn't know anyone. His afternoons went by and scrolling on his phone and his evenings in ordering takeout and watching cable TV, 
as if he couldn't stand for the years that remained to mean much, to have too much in them. As if it were easier that way, as if he were practicing for having to give up everything by giving up most of it a little early. Or maybe his motive was an animal preference for having what was going to happen happen off stage, or a confused wish to be out of the way when it happened. In a cemetery where he regularly went birding, he saw out of the corner of his eye a tombstone that read, Thy will not mine. And for a moment he thought it said, They will not mind. One evening, while traveling with his husband, he returned to their hotel room alone to fetch a sweater, and the room was silent and somehow full. He stood still. It was God, waiting. For no good reason, he had become aware of God in a hotel room that he and his husband had left behind for a moment, their clothes and their books and his camera strewn across the bed. He couldn't stay long. His husband was downstairs. But he didn't really want to stay. He didn't want to stay long enough to feel any doubt. He didn't want to see through it. It was probably for the sake of something like this silence, he thought, as he exited, that he spent so much time birding. And it was probably because of it that hermits and people in solitary confinement went mad. And writers. Not from being alone, but from spending too much time in such company. Every writer, every journeyman, past the halfway, is Keats at 24, Robert Lowell wrote, during the throttled-down mania of his last few years. He deleted the lines during a revision. Write as if thy time were short, for it is indeed short at the longest, Thoreau wrote in his journal in 1852, when he had ten years left. He also wrote that same year, The woods I walked in my youth are cut off. Is it not time that I ceased to sing? Shenandoah had come back to him in his first week of college, when he tried out for the school chorus. The song was the audition music. He didn't tell anyone he was going to try out. His wish to do so didn't make much sense. He'd never had any ambition or aptitude for singing. But college was a new world. Why not try new things? During the audition, the candidate stood on risers. He was given a copy of the sheet music, which he had to share with singers on either side of him. When, after a pitch pipe, the singing began, he discovered that he couldn't hear himself. He couldn't tell which voice thrumming in his ears was his. The thrumming wasn't just in his ears, it went through his whole body. It was confusing in a way that was quite beautiful. It seemed almost to warm him, which was slightly embarrassing. He knew he should be nervous. He sensed he wasn't performing well. But he loved the moment anyway. He enjoyed it, which wasn't the way things were done at that school. The candidates sang the same passage several times. Again from bar five, the chorus master directed them. After a few rounds, they seemed to be improving. And then it was over. He didn't get in, of course, which for a day or two nettled him. Was his failure part of what the song meant to him now? Or was it his having remained sensible of the song's beauty despite his failure? He could have joined another less exclusive singing group, which didn't screen for talent, but in those days, it was either Caesar or nothing with him, 
and he lets singing go. At a literary party, he complimented a novelist even older than he was on a story just published, which seemed to be about people the novelist had grown up with. And what are you working on? the older novelist asked. He stammered the way he did when asked for a name to go with his order. He had always hated to say his name. On the first day of kindergarten, he had got into a fistfight with a boy who had the name he thought should have been his own. Eventually, he managed to say to the older novelist that he was working on a novel that he was having trouble with. What kind of trouble? He didn't want to say. A dozen years before, he had reviewed one of the older novelist's books, though the man seemed not to remember. Or maybe he was just too polite to mention it. Oh, you know, I stole from life. I stole fire, was how he joked about it with his husband. Real people? The older novelist asked. There are people who will tell you that's an easy one, but I'm not one of them. He hadn't meant to confess. I've changed the details, he said. I think I'm probably the only person who could tell at this point, but I still feel it. It's the oldest problem. I will say, I don't think it's ever stopped any of us. Except we don't know about the novels that didn't get written because of it, he objected. Ah, that's true, the older novelist acknowledged, leaving him somewhat on the hook, neither convicted nor encouraged. Maybe the novelist did remember having been reviewed. One afternoon, while trying not to not write, he heard an angry sound in the corridor of the office building where he rented a room. It sounded like the clatter of a bicycle chain falling off, or like someone trying to force back into a dishwasher a rack that had skipped out of its grooves. It seemed to be coming from the end of the corridor, where, he knew, shelf brackets, the components of a disassembled desk, a sheet of plywood, and half a dozen drop ceiling tiles were leaning. But it didn't quite sound like any of these things, or like any of these things hitting each other. Was someone adding to the junk? He was in the middle of trying to remember something and come up with words for it, so at first he didn't pay full attention. When he finally gave in and opened his door, he saw that it was a pigeon beating its wings against a shut window. There was no one around. There often wasn't in that building. Sometimes pigeons try to come inside in late spring to build nests, if a building is at all permeable. And this was a trash building, which a hundred years ago had been one of those warehouses where bales and cases were swung in by means of a pulley at the top of the facade, and which now leaked whenever it rained, and the angles of the lintels in it shifted from month to month so that the doors almost never swung true in their frames. Come on, pal, he said to the pigeon, which was after all a city bird and couldn't expect to be coddled. His goal was to open the window without scaring the bird deeper into the building. He was willing to grab the bird, which he thought he should do with cupped hands if he had to, but he hoped it wouldn't come to that. Let's not get excited, he said as he approached. You're just a pigeon. It panicked, of course, and battered its wings against the glass again. When it quieted, it fixed on him one of the orange eyes in its swiveling, counterbalancing head. Come on, this isn't such a big deal, he said. As he reached to lift the sash, the pigeon stepped cautiously sideways down the sill, away from him. 
The springs in the sash were broken. In fact, the sash wasn't even properly in its frame, just leaning into it, and it was going to stay up only as long as he held it up. Fortunately, as soon as he lifted it, the bird tucked its gray head underneath and waddled out onto the ledge, which consisted of white mortar crumbling off bricks. But there, unfortunately, it stopped, its beak overlooking the drop into air, but its tail and the ends of its primaries still in the shadow of the sash's guillotine. You can't stay there, he told the pigeon, as his grip grew unsteady, as if it were a reasonable creature. That was Caleb Crane reading his story, Keats at 24. He's been publishing nonfiction and fiction in the magazine since 2005. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Teju Cole reads One Equals One by Anne Carson. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>